0: It is great to see everybody this morning. I got to tell you, um, I was blown away this morning uh, when the, the worship set, the music set was amazing and beautiful um, as it always is. But I got to tell you, when we get to that good, good father piece, uh, something happened and, and uh, I hear, my hair is blown back from this side of the room this way. I don't know what it is about that song in particular, especially for the men. I hear the men all of a sudden. The men come out, and you sing in that, you sing in that high register, you know, the one you use at the rock concerts and the football games when you're chewing, cheering for your, for your favorite team, and something happens when we come together and do this community. Uh, most weeks, when I get my weekend email that sends us the, the worship songs in advance, I listen to each of them and the flow of them, because it's very intentional how these guys put those together, and they're beautiful and wonderful, but nothing compares with coming together and having the real thing together in community. So it is just with great honor that I I get to come up here and do this, and I come up here fired up. Okay, so if you did your personal worship this week, are you a little nervous right now? Just a little bit. Just a little bit, because the, the, the S word is it. There's a thing in there, and you're like, where's he going to go with it? And I, this week, Ryan was like, should I hide, my, should I hide the children? Uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, I want to I give you a little reprieve. I want to let you off the hook a little bit. I just want to let you know that that is not what Paul is mainly about. So that is not mainly what we're going to be talking about today. So if it's not that, then what is it? I want to read you something. It was written by... Um, a Russian-American playwright, novelist, philosopher named Ayn Rand, who was the founder of a movement called Objectivism. I want to read you something that she said. She said, The word we, as in us, is like concrete poured over men, which sets and hardens to stone and crushes all beneath it. And that which is white and that which is black are lost equally in the gray of it. We is the word by which the depraved steal the virtue of the good, by which the weak steal the might of the strong, by which the fools steal the wisdom of the sages. What is my joy if all hands, even the unclean, can reach into it? What is my wisdom if even the fools can dictate it to me? What is my freedom if all creatures, even the botched and impotent, are my masters? What is my life if I am but to bow, to agree, and to obey? But I am done with this creed of corruption. I am done with this monster of we, the word of serfdom, of plunder, of misery, of falsehood and shame." And now I see the face of God. I raise this God over the earth, this God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride. This God is one word, I. I understand her frustration with people. She was born in 1905 in Russia. A woman. I understand her frustration, her lack of trust in people, in human beings. But she made one miscalculation in that thought. She is one. And she forgot that over and over throughout history, if we've been taught one thing, it's that anytime time we pursue I as our God, it ends in death and it ends alone. So today, in his letter to the people of Corinth, to the Christians there in the church, Paul makes a brilliant case for we. And that's what this passage is about. Let's take a look. I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it's actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you. There's that word. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? So we don't know exactly what was going on here. We don't know whether this was a truly biological and relationship, whether this was a, a stepmother. We don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that it was so perverse that even the non-believers around them condemned it. But somehow the church was able to let it go. Somehow they were, even, they, they were able to turn a blind eye to this or somehow authorize it. And why is that? Well, I think it begins with this. It begins with a cultural tug. And this is very important because remember that that city of Corinth, even though it's thousands of years old, is a lot more like our city and our culture than we would imagine. So the first thing that happened to this church was a cultural tug. So what was the world's wisdom about, about sex and sexual intimacy and sexual, uh, uh, and sexual morality in that day? Well, it was probably best summarized by a philosopher who lived a few hundred years before this named Demosthenes. This is what he said. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So thank you, wives. That was the culture in which they lived. That was the moral, the ethic, that had come to take hold in the hearts and minds of the people. And everybody just just accepted that, that that's the way it was. And before these people were Christians, they were Greeks. And those who were Jews, before they were Christians, they were Greek Jews. Or Jewish Greeks. So without realizing it. They were extremely influenced. By the culture around them. Not so different from us. So what was the alternate ethic that God taught? Well God taught this. God's wisdom. In in contrast to the world's wisdom. Is that sex is not just for procreation. And it's not just an appetite to be fed. It's much more profound than that. Here was God's wisdom. It was this. It's the seal of an enduring commitment to the deepest human intimacy possible when two become one flesh. Do you hear the difference between those two things? It's for procreation. It's an appetite to be fed and whatever means you need the wisdom of the flesh What's the wisdom of the Spirit? What's the wisdom of the God who made it? He said, no, 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 no. you're totally underestimating. You're totally misrepresenting. You're totally corrupting one of the most beautiful things in all of my creation. I have made this as a sign and seal of a covenant between two people who have chosen through unconditional love to become one flesh. And God was so serious about that that he used it as an analogy between us and Christ. Do you think there was an accident that Jesus said that the church was the bride, Christ was the groom? Do you think that with that metaphor in mind, he did not also have in mind the consummation of a marriage, the intimacy, the one fleshness that comes with that relationship? When we placed our trust in him, and the ring goes on the finger. And He consummates the marriage with us on the cross. And gives Himself fully as our husband, as the groom, sacrificially forever. Do you not think that He had this in mind? When He created this sexual ethic thousands of years before. In Leviticus, you can read about this exact Sin, in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 to 18, he gives a, 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 a list of different scenarios, and this is one of them. He says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Why? Because it's your father's nakedness. They are one. They belong together. They're united And the Jews and the Greeks alike knew that this was the wisdom of God and somehow it slipped through. This should have been entirely scandalous to this community of faith. They should have mourned over this, grieved, wept, lamenting over the sin and brokenness of this individual, experiencing this sin as a wound to themselves and to the whole community. You see, the scandal... The scandal of this story is not the immorality. The scandal is the indifference of the community. The scandal is the possibility that this community not only turned a blind eye, not only decided to mind their own business, but maybe even somehow rewrote the Scriptures to accommodate their desires so that they could do what they wanted to do and live in the flesh as opposed to living in the Spirit. And what Paul is telling this community is, you cannot do that because life in the Spirit is not an individual endeavor. It is, at its root, necessarily a community affair. And he challenges the community and and its leadership to step out and to address this grievous sin that apparently was ongoing. It didn't seem like it was just something that he did once and regretted and repented of and moved on. It sounds like this was a sin that was ongoing that was authorized because of the way Paul told them to handle it. So let's continue. So what does Paul say? He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What he's saying is, I don't need to be there to tell you what to do. I came and I taught you in spirit and I wrote the word to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. He spoke through me to you and as Christians, you have the Holy Spirit in and among you, so you don't need me to be there to be in the Spirit and to hear from me. You are the community of the Spirit When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Mayday, mayday, cultural alert, we hate this passage. We hate this idea as a culture. We don't like the idea of casting people out. Who are you to judge? Let him who has a sin cast the first stone. Didn't Jesus say that? We should mind our own business. Isn't that the wisdom of our culture? Robert Frost said it this way, I hold it to be the inalienable right of anybody to go to hell in his own way. That's America. That's self-reliance. That's independence. That's what we were founded on, Right? It's absolutely true that we cannot and should not compel a person to follow Christ inauthentically. But here's one of those wisdom of the world, wisdom of God moments. The world says mind your own business and leave each other alone. And uh, we say every person has a right to self-determination. And that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, I kind of like that. I remember when that one right there, Raina was little. She's two years old. Raina's a bit of a pistol. She's a fireball, a lot of energy. She's awesome, very confident, very socially confident. confident. We learned this when she was two. It went like this. She was on the playground right over here. Uh, Dee Dee happened at the time to be a teacher's assistant in another class and was happy to be on the playground at the same time. And she saw this scene, this this go down right here. So Raina was tooling around and she was a little cute, little and the dimples and the big white buck teeth and sticking out and the hair and everything. So, you know, kids would mess with her and play with her. And this one boy, how old was he? He was in third grade. So what is that, eight? Something like that. So the eight-year-old boy, two-year-old girl, he's teasing her, he's following her around, he's picking on her, he's, you know, whatever, doing all the stuff that that boys do. And so she takes it for a little while, and then she wheels around, and she looks up at him, because remember, she's two. So she looks up at him, and she puts the finger out, and she goes, don't tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. And he just kind of withered. She's going to do this to her husband one day. <laughs> this might be how we find her husband. You know that what, this, the story the when he pulled the sword out of the rock, the one who can stand up to that is the one you should marry. But let me tell you what, we laugh at that because it's funny, and we also admire it a little bit. We admire the defiant self-reliance in this little two-year-old girl, and you know what? That's okay. In fact, it's wonderful when it's a seven-year-old boy you're talking about, but when you stand and wag the finger at God, when you wag that finger at wisdom versus foolishness, At life versus death. And you say, Don't tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. You engage in the thing that got us in trouble from the beginning pride and rebellion. And here's the wisdom of God, as opposed to the wisdom of the world that says, Mind your own business. Mind your own business is to hate that person. To mind your own business in the face of a friend in our community. Who is wagging their finger at God and wisdom and life in the spirit for the sake of I is to hate that person. God's wisdom says it's just the opposite. God's wisdom says that we reach out to that person. So Paul says to this community of faith, you can't not care. You can't validate this behavior. You need to do something. And here's what you need to do. You need to take this defiant, rebellious man and you need to cast him out of the community of the Spirit and allow him to live a life of the flesh for his own sake and for the sake of this community. And you need to pray for his soul That the flesh in him will die so that the spirit might live for eternal life. That is the severe, painful, last resort act of love that is required to save a rebellious person. And to not do it in a community of faith, in the community of the spirit, in this church, in your family, among the people who have committed to Christ, but are living outside of that, is an act of hatred toward those people. That's what Paul is saying, and we'll understand that more in a moment. But I want, to take, I want to step aside here for a moment in case you find yourself in this category. And it's very possible that this person didn't realize he was caught up in his own pride and rebellion because of the indifference of his community, because it was somehow validated because they didn't discipline him. So I want to say this about temptation. Here's how it works. Satan is the great tempter. And here's what that means. It means he pours gasoline on the fires of your pride and rebellion. Guess what? You don't need Satan to sin. You don't need him at all. Quit pinning it on him. All he does is he prowls around and waits for you. He prowls around like a lion waiting in the shadows for you to make a mistake. For you to dip down into the water without looking to the side for you to let your ears be tickled by your own pride and rebellion. He waits. And just like a predator, he is perfectly vigilant and perfectly equipped to attack you at your weakest moment. And he will throw gasoline on that moment. And you will burn. So, Let me speak to my brothers and sisters in general. Pride, rebellion. Is there a sin in you that no one knows about but you or maybe someone you love and you're holding it and you're wagging your finger in defiance at God and saying, don't you tell me what to do. The devil's pouring gasoline on your fire and he's having heyday with you and you're dying right now. And I've been there. So I say that to you, not as a threat, but as an encouragement. Satan is the great tempter. So Paul says this, cast him out from among the community and give him over his desires. Make him choose. We have a very hard time doing this in our culture. Make him choose. If he's going to call out on the name of Jesus with his mouth, he must also live for the name of Jesus with his actions, or he must go live for himself. Make him choose, Paul says, and the consequences of his choice, hopefully, will drive him back to wisdom. So here it's very simple. The wisdom of God says that individuals do dumb things and they hurt themselves and they hurt other people. And sometimes, out of love for them, the community needs to do whatever it takes to protect them from themselves. And if they won't be protected, then we must protect the community from them. He goes on in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And that is a beautiful thing to say. I'll tell you why in a moment. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What he just said is be what you are. He didn't say earn what you are. He didn't say you just quit sinning and earn your salvation with Jesus. He said don't you know You've already been bought with a price by Christ. You're already cleansed. You're already pure. You're standing before God legally is as perfect. So be who you are. Don't be like this this leaven. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what the heck is he talking about? The festival and the leaven. What well, was the festival of the unleavened bread. It was, it was the Passover. It was the week of the Passover. And the Passover, if you remember, was a, was a memorial that, that Israel practiced to remember when they were freed from slavery in Egypt, and they didn't have time to, put, to, to let their bread rise, so they had to eat unleavened bread, bread that hadn't risen. And so that was a memorial to that, and once a year what they would do is they would purge all the leaven, all the yeast, all, everything from their house, they completely clean up their house. In memory of that, but there was more to it than that, it also symbolized something else. It, there was, a, it, was, a, uh, it was a health issue. Because let me tell you how this worked. Old leaven, did you hear that phrase in there? Went like this. They would, it wasn't just about yeast being bad. They would take a little bit of, of yeast, bread, dough, with leaven in it from last week's dough. And they'd put it in this week's dough after it fermented and got a little sour and it would create a richer tasting bread, a sourdough bread. And then they'd do it again the next week. Take a little dough from the old one, put it in the new one, take it again the next week, What happens over time? That fermented bread becomes poisonous bread. And eventually they begin getting sick from the bread that they're eating because it's made with old leaven. So what is the old leaven? Well, Jesus says in Luke 12, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven is hypocrisy. It's not sexual immorality. It's not greed. It's not idolatry. It's not any of those things. It's using pretty words to conceal ugly behavior. That's what this whole thing is about. Hypocrisy in the community of faith. In the community of the Spirit. Saying one thing and living another way. And what does that do? What does that cause when you do that? Well, let me tell you. It causes the world to blaspheme. Causes the world to make fun of our God. You know what Mahatma Gandhi said? He said, I don't have any problem with Christ. I have a problem with Christians. Oh! That's devastating. Do you have friends outside of the community of faith and their biggest complaint about Christianity is hypocrisy? You know why? Because we're hypocrites. Here's the deal. Everybody is. Ultimately, we're all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. Inside and outside the church, the difference is that even the pagans know that we should know better. Even they know that if we believe in this guy, Jesus, we should of all things be humble. We should of all things be authentic. We should of all things desire to be changed from the inside out, not just to pretend from the outside in. So hypocrisy is what Paul goes after here, and indifference in this community of faith. So he challenges them to do this, and it raises an issue that Paul alludes to, Um, To combat something. Here's what happens when 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 you let sin inside the church go unchecked. What happens is, he's not just talking about good and evil. He's talking about foolishness and its destructive effects on the community. And if foolishness is ignored, and I want you to think about this in our own culture, with our own social issues right now. If foolishness is ignored, what happens over time is the foolishness becomes the wisdom. And the fool becomes the hero. When foolishness is ignored, foolishness becomes the wisdom of the day and the fools are running the house. So Paul alludes to, and scripture articulates throughout, a way to defend against that and we call it church discipline. If you're a member of this church, you're under, this, you're under discipline right now. What Paul's talking about here when he talks about excommunication, when he talks about casting him out, is a last resort of church discipline. And it works like this First of all, you need to know why you do it. You don't do it punitively, it's not judgment, it's not proclaiming superiority over a person. That's for God. The first reason you do it is for Christ's glory. The second reason you do it is for the restoration of the believer, which he says later in the passage. You do it because you love the believer. Not because you feel superior. You do it because you love them. The third re- thing is if they will not repent, then you must protect the peace and purity of the church. So that's why you do it. Now, how does it work? It works like this it's very simple. You got somebody in your life that you, you know that they're struggling with sin, unrepentant sin. They won't confess. If they've confessed it and they're just struggling, well then it's it's game over, you're fine. You're, now you're you're helping them, you're walking with them. Paul had a, and something going on in his life. He had a, what he called a thorn in the flesh given to him by an agent of Satan. And I believe it was besetting sin. Because God's answer to him was, My grace is sufficient for you. But the difference between Paul and this man is that Paul struggled with his sin. So you have someone you know and they're they're blind to their own sin and their own pride and rebellion, and you go to them as a brother or sister. If they repent and and their repentance is as notorious as their sin, you're done. You're just helping them walk in their process of sanctification. If they don't repent, you bring witnesses with you. Now that doesn't just mean someone who saw the sin. It means someone who can give witness to the wisdom of God about that sin. Hey, this isn't just my opinion. This is the word of the Lord. Let's reaffirm this with these other people. If they still don't repent, we take it formally to the leadership of this church, which is the session. And if they still don't repent... For their own sake and for the sake and the peace of the purity of the church, we hand them over to the flesh in in hopes the consequences of their actions, just like they did with the prodigal son, will kill the flesh in them once and for all and drive them back in the spirit to wisdom. That's the way a healthy church works. That's the way a healthy family works. Healthy community group. That's the way it works. And here's why it's so important. Because if we don't do that, then a couple things happen. First of all, we as a community learn to tolerate and eventually accept sin and foolish behavior. And then it becomes wisdom to us. And that kills churches. Maybe you've been in one that that's happened to. Another thing that happens is uh, the oppressed people in our church who are maybe under the thumb of the sinner feel helpless. Because no one will listen. So now this agent that's supposed to be the safest place for the oppressed becomes the worst place. Because though they're supposed to be protected, instead they continue under the oppression of the sinner, of the rebel. And lastly, because of what Paul said, the world is watching. And even they know that we shouldn't be hypocrites. And they blaspheme because of us when we don't deal with sin. Finally, Paul says this, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that there's the hypocrisy, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. We forget about all those other ones, by the way. When's the last time you heard of someone being cast out of a church because of greed? Do you know that 400 years ago, a session of a church disciplined a businessman because he charged usurious interest to his customers? Threw him out of the church because he wouldn't change his interest rate. Not even to eat with such a one. Again, not a sinner an unrepentant, prideful, rebellious sinner. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Did you hear that? What have I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy, and what he's reminding them of is that they are a covenant people bound to the law of God. So what happens inside is different than what happens outside, and here's why, and I'll leave you with this. This community does not exist for itself. We exist for a purpose, and guess what the purpose is? It's to seek and save the rebels. We exist for the outsiders. We exist for the idolaters, for the sexually immoral, for the greedy, for the swindlers. We are here to save them, to serve them, to minister to them, to make wrong things right. So, this isn't about self righteous judgment. This is about the peace and purity and vitality and mission of this body. I told you that the kind of discipline Paul talks about in here is a last resort. Let me tell you why that is. Let me tell you when church discipline starts. It starts the moment a covenant child comes out of the womb. 99% of church discipline is what you're doing right now. It's listening to the word and absorbing it into your heart. It's forming in you and in our community the wisdom of God, living in the rhythm of grace as a righteous people who live for others and not ourselves. That's what righteousness means in scripture. As a pure people who are not tripped up and corrupted by the dying flesh, but are living by eternal truths. And as a sanctified people, which is people set apart for a mission to seek and save the lost, to bring redemption to God's creation. We do that all the time. We do that by training up our children in the way they should go. We do that when the old teach the young. We do that when we come together in a community like this and we serve and minister to each other. But what happens if we do all this? I began with a quote from uh, Ayn Rand. I want to end with a quote from another philosopher-poet C.S. Lewis, he can make the feeblest and filthy of us if we let him into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for and nothing less. I saw a Jungle Book this week, so I'll say this very simply The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as former wolves, people who scraped and struggled and competed to survive in a broken wilderness that would have in its heart to hunt us. But Lord God, we come to you as a people who were once wolves and are now Lambs of God, sheep in his pasture, with Jesus as our shepherd, we come together with you as a community of faith and we pray that through the accountability and encouragement of this people of faith, you would make us more and more righteous and pure and sanctified for our purpose every single day. I pray for my brothers and sisters that these guys and I, myself, would chase after accountability, would chase after the restraint of our own sin by being open to our brothers and sisters and not just by minding our own business. And I pray that when that happens, your grace would rush in through us and that we would let this flesh in us die once and for all, that the Spirit might live. In Jesus' name, amen.